Hi, I'm Bryn Thompson. Today, Pip Coburn and I are talking about biases in investing. We all operate with certain biases hindering our work at one time or another. Even when we get to a workable awareness with one bias, another is likely to pop up. So it's not a matter of whether or not we have investment biases, just what kind and to what degree. I think it takes some practice to become fluent in all the behavioral biases and the impact they have on our work and our results. So we thought we would share more about them in these conversations. For today, we'll discuss one that comes up again and again, type two error and its effect in real life, which we call type two error avoidance behavior. All right, so today we're gonna to talk about type two error and Pip, I was thinking there are times when, um, you know, we talk about type two error a lot and have for many years. And I uh, first learned about it in studying for the CFA way, way, way back a long time ago. Um, and so sometimes I think that everyone else also knows what it is, but, um, but that's not true. So can we first just talk about what is type two error? And then Absolutely. we'll get into why we want to spend time on it today. Absolutely. So uh, there's type one and type two error. Type two error is saying that something doesn't matter and it turns out that it does matter. Or it's saying uh, no and it turns out the answer is yes. So it'd be if you went to your doctor and they said, no, you don't have cancer, you go, great. Type two error is when they say you don't have cancer and it turns out you did have cancer. Um, I use the example at airport security is a great one where we spent all, yeah. all of airport security is about avoiding making a type two error because all that the, time spent all the lines all, all the systems is like quite, for type two error yes quite literally they could ask me and i could say no i'm not a threat and let me go through but they don't know that that's true so they have to kind of come up with this gigantic system mm -hmm. even though like the potential threat people are point zero 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 one percent Mm -hmm. um, so they, the, the entire system is to make sure there's no type two error ever. So they do a lot so of what's things. The, what's the, um, how would you port that over to investment firms? What is the big system that's been created around type two error? Yeah, what I, I was just jotting some notes this weekend. So what I wrote as I was kind of saying, well, why do I bring this up in our industry? Mm -hmm. uh, what I wrote is I think the industry culture has adopted an extremely unhealthy let's say mismatched subconscious level of type two air avoidance that ironically, systematically creates far higher rates of type two air in general and wastes amazing amounts of time, which stunts individual development and leads to burnout from, pursu from pursuing far too often what is unimportant in the name of diligence and thoroughness. I think that happens subconsciously in our industry and it's not a little problem, it's a big problem because you get burnout and also that time could go, we need to generate insight in our industry. It's not enough to collect a bunch of data or a bunch of knowledge or a bunch of opinions from other people. We have to generate insight. And this is a lot of time spent not generating insight, not even trying to get in the realm of generating insight. And it's mind numbing activity doing things that you're pretty sure don't matter, but you're gonna just triple or quadruple check. So it's, um they're diminishing returns to the third, fourth, and fifth check 
on your information. Is it say more? Yeah, and we'll get we'll get towards predetermined game plans, which pretty much everyone listening to this this podcast has um, uh, worked with us on before. But how do you get yourself in position so you can just separate between noise and signal extremely well, so you're spending virtually zero time on noise. Um, I was going to give that one example just of how um, dreadful this can be. Um, but yeah, because I think, so I think this is, um, this is a big opportunity for younger analysts in particular to start at recognizing type two error avoidance earlier on. It's also part of how they learn and make sure that they are double, triple checking um, and so I just wanted to acknowledge that there is in all of this, there is a, there is a balance and the, um, a lot of the, what we're hoping to provide in this discussion is our different tools to become more aware. So you can decide, is this just type two error avoidance or not? And, um, and in a personalized fashion, because, you know, your superstar analyst, you definitely don't want them doing a bunch of stuff that, you know, they can just slice and dice through the noise and the signal really clearly and quickly. It's just like, and we'll give an example later. But your younger person that's just starting up, yeah, you know, of course you don't give them the same amount of latitude. They're not this. They don't have the same ability to detect what matters and what doesn't. But say more. You have a couple examples of how we've seen this oh. go on in cultures and with longtime analysts um, for a long time. And and oh, before that, you know, there's this. We talked about the system. Like think of like the airport security lines um, that we go through. Um, as analysts to make sure the work is really, really vetted and tight. Um, but there's also another layer of this that maybe portfolio managers have are in this so much that they've forgotten about some of the type two error avoidance behavior that can happen. And what I mean is that there's a portfolio and sometimes analysts may be separate from this. Mm and portfolio managers may be closer, the portfolio's job is to handle some of the risk and is to handle some of the errors that are inevitably gonna happen. Yeah, I think of it, it's, it, its job is to absorb type two error. So as opposed to the airport security where there's zero tolerance for mm -hmm. type two error, here, and yet there still is type two error. And so, you know, people right. tell your stories, they got through with this, they just didn't. Mm -hmm. In our industry, we make errors. That's what we do. We have to be really good at dialing up the amount of, of error and dialing it down. But having 99.9% .9 type two error avoidance, that, that would be an insane thing to, to uh, attempt to achieve. It would be unachievable, but to attempt to achieve it would be a disaster as well. Mm. I think, Bryn, there's really two different types of uh, type two error avoidance in our industry. And it's it's subconscious. I don't think that this mm. is happening consciously, partly because no one knows what type two error is until we had this conversation. So to think that they're dialing up for type two error mm. within their metrics. One is that you make, a, you make a mistake thinking that noise is noise when it actually is a signal. Again, an experienced superstar is gonna get this stuff like really super quick. Um, a younger analyst or less experienced or not as good analyst isn't. The second portion is maybe even worse. This is where failing to prepare answers about noise, um, when someone has inquired about the noise, itself is a mistake. So you show up for the morning meeting and you haven't 
looked into that thing because you knew it was noise and you didn't bother you know, looking into mm -hmm. it. And then someone says, hey, what do you think about the thing? Uh, Antenna gate for us was a, a big one where people spent a couple of weeks, a lot of time, a lot of tech analysts making sure they had a view on Antenna gate. We spent at about Apple. 10 minutes at Apple. This is 2007, maybe. Mm -hmm. We spent about 10 minutes because we were in position to think, hey, you know, this really isn't going to matter. And here's why. So we had mm -hmm. thought about that through. But a lot of people spent a lot of time. There's a, a story from one of our clients, but maybe I could use I think it. in part, you know, one of the things that's, yeah, I think a lot of, you know, in that vein, Apple analysts would consider that was just doing their job. Uh, unfortunately, yes. Now, if you're a business analyst, or, or rather, if you're an industry analyst, I'd say that is your job. People call you to ask you about all sorts of things. And kind of your reputation is to know a lot about everything that's going on. That's an industry analyst. Investment analysts, our job is actually really different. It's to get rid of all the extra stuff and prioritize and spend our time trying to divine insights on very few things. So two different jobs, but somewhere along the past 30 years, we started to try to replicate knowledge as opposed to uh, be in position to generate insight. Those are two different jobs. An industry analyst, absolutely. That is their job to understand the ins and outs and whys and et cetera, because that's a whole different business. We're trying to get rid of that stuff. Okay. So, uh, well, we're trying to get rid of all the stuff that we're, our job is to figure out what really, really matters towards mm -hmm. the investment, towards the stock. Yeah. Everything else, it's, it's not just a luxury. It actually takes away from your capacity and it, it doesn't allow you to sharpen your skills of identifying what matters and what doesn't. I used to use the example of if you ever watch a professional soccer players warm up or little kids playing soccer, they mm -hmm. always, not always, but a lot of the time they will warm up in limited spaces where they're only allowed to touch the ball once or twice. And what that does is they sharpens their decision-making and it has them move better without the ball, prepare to get the ball, et cetera. They create a restriction. If you have no restrictions and you can spend your all day learning everything you want about Apple because, you know, the stock's down and you spend your day looking at antenna gate and, hey, what were sales in India? I, I don't think you should be charging your clients for that. I think that is um, not, it's beyond a luxury. It actually hmm. hurts your investment clients. If you're an industry analyst, absolutely. Investment analyst, it's just a wrong way to use your time. Uh, I had a, a, one example, Bryn, from a couple years ago of a situation that would really, it, it couldn't, I think it couldn't demonstrate this, these ideas mm. in a better way. So we were, we were doing a retreat with one of the clients and um, the analysts in the group behind the scenes have been telling me about kind of what I would term type two air avoidance behaviors in the morning meeting. And so at a certain point, and they were like nudging me, hey, when are we going to talk about this? They didn't want to make a big deal in front of the portfolio managers, understandable, mm -hmm. but they, they wanted to yeah. like... Okay, so I sort of threw this into the pot that I didn't think that, you know, maybe people felt safe enough to say, um, I don't know at the morning meeting, or, uh, hey, I haven't looked into it yet, would you like me to, or something like that, or I don't think it's important, so I haven't looked into it, I can talk to you later about it if you need to know, whatever, or just trust me, you shouldn't. So I kind of threw this out there and one of the portfolio managers from way across the room and said, oh, no, that, the analysts know very well. That's, that's a good thing to do, et cetera. Now, they had had a legacy where maybe that was totally not fair to do. Like people were terrified going to the morning meetings. Those days were ending, but still mm -hmm. there was this huge residue. 
And I was like, no, I think they, I think there might be a problem. We could check in at a different portfolio manager said, I think fear is actually good. I think it, it motivates people. And I'm like, oh, and so conversation. Finally, um, one courageous analyst um, who is very senior, one of their superstars stood up and said, I get in every morning, two hours early to check any and every information source so that I never get picked off in the morning meeting. Mm. And I still remember it. Like you it was could like have preparation heard. and diligence. However, the words, the words <laughs> picked off are the key one. Mm -hmm. You could have heard a pin drop and everyone understood that they had that something in their system had this superstar analyst just making sure that he wasn't picked off in the morning meeting by someone else who thought something right. was important and he would look unprepared. And it was an experienced analyst. This wasn't like first few no, years no, on the is, job jitters. This is one of their best. Exactly. You know, early in your career, you might want to get in early. Yeah. I certainly did. But <laughs> as you proceed, you shouldn't have that in the backdrop. And everyone else that I could explain the difference between fear that's appropriate and we talk about anxiety with our clients that we don't always want full psychological safety this isn't mm -hmm. an aa meeting right this is a business profession so if you mm -hmm. have some anxiety maybe you want to get your butt out of bed and you know get there early and check into the thing that you think does matter that's an appropriate anxiety showing up to do a whole bunch of work even though you know it doesn't matter so that you don't look like you're unprepared with your colleagues mm. that's I think that's a, that's a huge, huge issue and a huge, huge, uh, uh, awful thing. Awful thing. So, so it sounds like there are two types of this, how type two error is showing up, you know, that, mm -hmm. that we see one is more of a personal, a double, triple, quadruple check every source. Mm. One is, but you're talking about something different too, which is a little bit more cultural. Yeah, I think the first one, you're right. Um, how do I get in position on my own to be really good at deciding what matters and what doesn't? That's first. And that's a great attitude and spirit. It's just there can be an overpronating that that last bit of time yeah. is, is totally wasted. <laughs> oh, I've done that. I remember sitting with my coach one day where saw the trader came in and say, hey, Pip, I know you've been looking to buy XYZ. Um, do you want me to step up and buy this? And I looked and my coach was in the room and I said, um, maybe let me just make a couple more calls. And the trader said, great. And went back and my coach looked at me and said, what do you need to know? <laughs> and he totally caught me. I was like in, uh, what did they call that? Analysis paralysis or mm -hmm. I was just scared. <laughs> and so I had this story that I said, but I had no plan. I was just like, oh. You wanted to reassure yourself. <laughs> and just instead of saying, no, I'm scared and uh, maybe I won't be scared later and call it what it was, I had this like, you know, hallucination that was about that. So me getting better at figuring out what noise and signal is, that's part, of, I think that's part about becoming great at, at your job. Mm -hmm. The other part is, is more cultural, is team oriented, is, is the system set up that I have to handle if I look bad and unprepared and that I don't know everything, that that's going to be a bad thing. And there's a reason that that plays into the, the industry in certain ways. You have mm -hmm. portfolio managers that are looking for shortcuts or heuristics of assessing all the analysts and their skill set. 
the numbers from stock picks don't quite do it because sometimes you go, yeah, that yeah, they got that right, but you know they're I don't you know they're kind of lucky or they got that wrong, and so we don't have that. So portfolio managers often has mistaken knowledge for the ability to generate insight in their process of trying to figure out who are the analysts mm -hmm. to really you know defer to and who aren't. And you've seen this in a lot of meetings where someone, uh, you know, our dear friend Betty, when she first started with us, if she didn't know the answer to something, she'd babble on about all sorts of things without ever attending to the question. <laughs> and we all have that habit sometimes when we don't really know the answer of like, well, if, if I talk enough, they'll either forget what the question was, I'll forget what the question is. So, so we fill air in this case with knowledge when hmm. what we really want as investors is insight. So yeah, two different forms of type two air problems. So um, what's the way out? What kind of tools can we talk about that, um, that help with this? Where do you want to start? Uh, sure. Um, well, I, I, in, the, in the short piece that we're uh, putting out, I broke it down into three cat, four categories. Um, and just think about earnings season as the backdrop to all these, I suppose. Uh, part one is actually what processes do we use now um, to reduce the actual type two error systematically? And that's where, you know, we've talked about for a bunch of years, creating a predetermined game plan, uh, creating a thesis at the bare minimum, create a phenomenal red flagging system, because those, those processes are the processes that lead you to decide in advance, a priori, what actually would signal look like and what would noise look like. That's, that's number one. And we can keep getting sharper and sharper in those, particularly the red flagging which I think our industry doesn't tend to spend enough time on because that's really the part where you don't want type two error to, to creep in where you said something didn't matter. It does matter. And the stock's down 20%. If you said something didn't matter and it matters and the stock's up 8%, well, not as big an issue, but we don't do enough job on uh, red flagging. So that's, that's one thing we're trying to systematically get better. The other is like conscious skill building, that we think will systematically increase our capacity for distinguishing between noise and signal. Mm -hmm. So during our days, you know, our friend Morris Pickens, who's a sports psychologist, he works with golfers, a huge portion is called practice and prep in his mm -hmm. orientation. To us, that is translated into learning new skills and then internalizing them. So mm -hmm. that could be journaling. It could be getting together with friends and discussing errors and then journaling. It could be going to uh, a conference at Harvard on behavioral analysis. It could be all sorts of things, but are we system, uh, studying change frameworks is one of my favorites. So are we systematically getting better at those? So that's part one, reducing the actual type two error rate systematically. If we're just spending our time avoiding and learning and learning and learning, we actually won't reduce that error rate systematically, in which case, you know, we're right to be scared. Uh, the second is I put save time aggressively. And uh, initially starting out with an hour and seeing if you, you cut back on something and see if it actually matters. So instead of reading eight synopses of the quarter, you know, try six and see if you really felt you missed anything. And if at the end you go, you know, then maybe you go to four and then mm -hmm. before too long, you're not reading anyone's synopsis because, you know, you're doing it yourself. Or do I really need that's to? A, that's a really helpful thing for a, like a, a manager to direct the, an analyst, you know, spend one hour on this or, you know, two hours on this question only. Um, because mm. I, I mean, 
I know I would want to be as thorough as possible and find answers, sometimes where there are no answers yet to the question. And um, that can lead to a rabbit hole. So I think more senior people can help guide oh. um, the newer to the group on, you know, just even if the times sound arbitrary, it's very, very helpful. I, I think methods to uh, help us from being too, in quotes, thorough. Uh, the phrase I like to use is thoroughness is the enemy of insight. If you just let yourself keep swallowing and swallowing and swallowing and swallowing, the diminishing returns, ultimately it goes negative on you. Because again, you, you suddenly you get so adept at just swallowing knowledge and data, but you get inadept, is that the right word? You don't advance in trying to understand like what really mattered. And we're paid to figure out what really matters, not to know everything. Uh, so in earning season, and my gosh, uh, I think it was 2005 where we like did the back of an envelope for like a day of mm -hmm. how much of our time would be spent if we gave earnings the proper, in quotes, proper uh, time and attention that was standard in our industry would prep and then we'd have to call and then we'd talk to the management and yeah. all that. And we care a lot about a lot of companies. So it would, when we did that calculation, it was about, would have been about 40% of our time that we could just get sucked up. And if you're doing stuff and you know, it doesn't really matter. No wonder why people hate earnings season. I think one of my friends said earnings season should be like the World Series. It should just be fun. Like you get the answers and you see how you work. And most people just absolutely hate it instead. But anyway, back to just saving time, self-reinforced limits, aim to resist the tug to consummately be real time, which is just so haunting every day. And even avoid the triggers that might trigger a change in your agenda, like newspaper. I at this point, I could read the newspaper and not be triggered by it. But if it was 15 years ago, I'd pick up the newspaper and yeah, occasionally something there, there should be something that does trigger you. But most of the time it just hits all your buttons and it creates your agenda for the day. Hmm. Um, so those, that's kind of part two. Part one, again, was reducing the error rate systematically. Part two was aggressively uh, chunking out time, which is probably uh, by chunking out time, we chunk out um, the bad part of type two error avoidance. Um, the, th the third one I'll have is for portfolio managers, you know, create space with each analyst, uh, depending on their skill ability so that you don't help them, you don't enable them or, you know, encourage them to do a bunch of things. So, uh, and distinguishing. So it, it could be, Hey, Sue, I was thinking about topic X, Y, Z about company, whatever. Uh, do you think that matters? I reviewed your predetermined game plan. Uh, I didn't see you reference this X, Y, Z topic anywhere. Hey, if you don't think this matters, just let's skip this conversation because I don't want to waste any time. You have a super low type two error rate and I trust your senses on this. I was just checking it. So if your portfolio manager say that, not, hey, what do you think? Uh, so I have this little story about 15, no, no, 20 years ago where my boss, Ed, came in and just said, hey, you know, uh, what's going on with Cisco? It's down six. This was like 1997. And instead of just asking him, uh, do you want me to check into it? This goes into my form of the communication. Check into it. Um, I, he left. I did four hours of work, came to an answer, and he didn't even really freaking care about it because he was just bopping around the office. <laughs> so I learned this from J.P. Rangaswamy when he got a big title at Salesforce, mm -hmm. uh, chief, global, chief scientist. He said the first thing he had to learn, and this is translate this over to portfolio manager, mm. is if he asked things, if he even made a slight comment <laughs> about things, people would make sure to go after that thing. They would scurry. They would scurry. <laughs> scurry like, and do oh, work. I got to get this thing for JP. Yeah. And he, he 
learned pretty, he's a very quick learner. He learned within a couple months that he had to be very careful with his commentary, mm -hmm. otherwise he would trigger this off. So if you're a portfolio manager or CIO or something, being really careful not to inadvertently trip that off. Um, the fourth, so the fourth one though, Bryn, is communication. And I yeah. did allude to the situation with Ed, situation, the situation with Ed, um, 20 plus years ago, all I had it was a situation ask, with you. Situation. Really. Yeah, it was my situation, <laughs> my problem. I, the Jamaicans always say there's no problems or just situations. Situations. Right. I love that. Well, this was my situation because yeah, at about two 30 in the afternoon, I knocked on his door, like diligently, not sheepishly, diligently. Hey, can I come in? Yeah, yeah, come on in, come in. Oh, I checked into Cisco, nothing going on. And his face was like, it, it didn't, it, none of this connected with him at all. And there I was like, after my four hours being diligent and mm -hmm. he didn't care at all. All I had to ask, say was, Ed, I don't know why the stock's down. I don't think it's anything. Or Ed, do you want me to check into it? Or just like one question before, mm -hmm feeling like well, Ed clearly implied I should go spend four hours. If anyone actually asked me along the way whether Ed would have thought that was a good use of my time, I probably would have go, no, actually it probably, maybe I should check two hours in or something. You know, it's funny because I think th in thinking about all of this is, um, it, you know, we have these biases and errors and it's, it's helpful to think what error might I be making you know, in this behavior, in this thinking, or even in this thesis, in this work, because in that example, your type two error avoidance was about to throw you into a type one error. <laughs> you could have find, found something. Oh gosh. And it could have thrown you into type one error or confirmation bias or avail availability, <laughs> recency wow, I bias. Never, I never thought about that part, Brent. Yeah, actually <laughs> so it's, a lot, worse than I <laughs> it's a lot worse. So the more we can, <laughs> you know, almost think through, all right, there are, I'm bound to be making some errors in this analysis. We know that, it, we know that about um, all human analysis um, and all kinds of analysis. So what are they? And that's the only way that oh, we have a chance true. to be uh, reducing that tracking error just a tad. Yeah, I mean, uh, one methodology is just have a couple partners in your, in your work each day and share what your agenda is and see if they think any of it's insane. Like I'm gonna speak to someone about antennas for Apple. And someone would have said, I don't know. I think that the technology is available and somehow if this is a big issue, they might have to take a write off and they'll figure it out. What do you think? Mm. And they just had to have that little check. I had um, back in the realm of communication, I, I had a couple, one is the I don't know index. Like how often am I saying I don't know? And if the answer is like zero, then that's a problem. It either means I'm over preparing to actually know everything about everything mm -hmm. or that I'm kind of taking a swing at every pitch mm -hmm. uh, just to seem like I'm on top of it. And if I'm do particularly saying, if I'm not using a conviction meter inside of what I do know, like, I don't know, I 5% guess would say this because of this. Then, okay, that's reasonable. The other thing that I was thinking is I was, I, I like listening to various comedy channels on XM as I drive back and forth to Saratoga. I zip around between the different ones. And I think some of the type two error could be avoided by being good at, in quotes, heckler, hecklers in your audience. And so I was thinking about the morning meeting, like framed as, you know, if, I mean, if you're pre preparing like that one superstar analyst, effectively you're preparing for like, what if a heckler like said this, what am I gonna mm. say? In fact, you're, you're just kowtowing that I'm just going to prepare so that I'm, 
I'll actually answer every question. But, and I'm not saying to say these things in a, in a, a snarky way or anything like that, but if someone said to me, did you see what, uh, what XYZ said about the quarter? I might just say something like, I didn't. Um, he isn't one of my four key analysts that I bank on um, for their thinking. Um, is he really good? Should I, and, and what did he say? You know, not defensive, like, oh, or like spending the extra hour being prepared. Just so I think being, you're talking about some permission to have, um, to not be always right, which in some cultures is more readily available than others. And in some teams is more readily available than others. And it doesn't sound to me like you're saying to overdo it either. Like it's not a team that is constantly saying, I don't know. Do you? No, I don't. <laughs> so, no. um, but some uh -huh. element of having a little bit more freedom or permission rather to say, I don't know, you know, I don't know the answer yet. And it could also or, be uh, the phrase that you and I are using with people in ESG is show your work. Right. So a simple answer, Hey, did you see what uh, so-and-so said on such and such? Just saying no. Well, yeah, you can imagine that could be construed as, you didn't care or, or ignorance or your ignorance or something where if I'm answering, no, I haven't, they're not one of my top four, but is maybe I'm wrong. Is, is he good? Or what's he saying mm -hmm. today? Mm -hmm. like, ESG is such a helpful place to practice this because it's, it's newer ground for most, certainly for American mm -hmm. investors. I think it's a, it's a newer ground where um, the answers aren't necessarily clear. Um, the processes and incorporating that into your teams is, is not mm -hmm. clear yet for most. Um, so it's nice fertile ground to uh, just show your work, like you said, and be a little bit more open, perhaps. Yeah, it's real fast and there's, it's almost in some places where even if you wanted to pretend you had the answers, it's just so not believable. Yeah. So if you're, oh, I'm done wrestling with the meaning <laughs> of life, I pretty much got that one. It's like, really? You do. Wow. You're done. You're totally done with that one. That seems unbelievable. But I think a lot of the problems we get ourselves into is because we don't think, how would I communicate in that situation so that I have the freedom to think about what matters and doesn't matter and explore that as best as I can and not just be a preconceived set of premeditated reactions to, oh my God, I better get in two hours early. I don't want to be picked off in the meeting. And yeah, some, some cultures are really, really bad that there's all that level of fear baked into it. I think just as often it's kind of us not baking it in even further and not coming up with some communication strategies to, to maintain that extra hour that you don't have to show up every day. So yeah, at its core, there has to be a, or it, there may be a redefinition around what doing a good job is, right? For the analyst, for for the whole team. Like you said, I mean, you picked up points like the job is not to know everything. It's to have, you know, clearly investable insights. Mm. Um, and I know in my era, the job was to know everything. Did you have an era? I didn't know you had an, an era. era. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's how old I am. Well, that's true. Um, I get your point. Yes, that was an era from long, long ago. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think more and more, well, one thing that you said that triggered me was this is an industry where you can define what being a great analyst is. 
there's so many different ways to do the job. Sitting back and doing it the normal way with the normal results is pretty much um, a path towards, you know, belabored mediocrity. So all of us are trying to figure out, and we bring people together that like want to be students and student minded and all, and then they go back and you know, sometimes they don't have the same culture at their organization. But how, how do I become a student? How do I define what being a great analyst is? Because I think there's people want to see that. Mm -hmm. so you don't have to do the normal things. But again, you may want to create some communication or tools met with communication. In my predetermined game plan, I looked at it this way and that's how I did this. And someone's going to go, holy cow, oh my God, this, they're so on a path towards generating insight. That's so, very cool. Then in the meeting that you didn't know what was going on with Amazon sales in India, you just say it's under 1% mm -hmm. of revenue and I, I don't bother looking at it until at least it's six. So I want to recap these four uh, ways out among many, but these were four to highlight today. Um, to decide that? proactively what matters. So creating that thesis, a predetermined game plan, red flagging, the second was save time aggressively. So think through your process for earnings, perhaps trying out some self-enforced limits, um, perhaps trying that out with your team, uh, resisting the tug to be real time. The third one was about communication. The I don't know index. Um, and there was a fourth one about the portfolio manager creating some space culturally. So that one is a little less unilateral. We, we tried to highlight things that any individual could do unilaterally and try out. Um, but this one yeah. is a little bit more about the... Yeah, I, um, one of my favorite quotes of all time came from our friend Boris in Budapest. Mm -hmm. And it, one afternoon, we were on like this little boat on the side of the river. It was very hot, I remember. We were in the shade, but there's a, and he had like their fancy fruit drinks. And he just said, process can't kill passion. Mm -hmm. And I think people who like wanted to be investors from the time they were 15 years old might say, oh, I, I really want to be like Warren Buffett. I want to be. And then they're, you know, 35 years old. They're hoping that they can, you know, somehow make enough money to escape by age 40 because they kind of hate their jobs and earnings. And I'm pretty sure Warren Buffett is not hating earnings season the way we do. So it's a little <laughs> sample of the distinction between at least our vision of what Warren Buffett has been doing all these years and what we're doing. How do we take little steps to move towards the direction of, of being more like Warren mm. or more like Mike or more whoever that might be? So hopefully this is helpful. Great. Let's type two error. And there are pieces on type two error, two pieces now, red flagging and predetermined game plans. And I'll throw that in as well, the, um, your piece from 2011 on avoiding uh, vanquishing decision-making biases. So uh -huh. since you pointed out that as you go doing this type two error, you actually make, might make matters worse, as my wife Kelly used to say. <laughs> Don't make matters worse. Great. Well, thank you, Pip. Thanks, Bren. Fun. As mentioned, we have two pieces on type 2 error and a piece on a number of common investment biases that we're happy to send on. 
I hope that after listening, you're now more aware of type two error and maybe even have a few ideas on how to address it in your investment process. Until next time.